todo el mundo. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest today is Jerome Reuter, a film critic and historian whose work can be found in Diabolique magazine and various online publications. He's a critic in the true sense of the word, as in critiques, with full and thought-provoking context. I've been reading his work for years, so I'm really happy to have him on the show to talk about his newly released book, Electric Funeral, Black Sabbath, and the Cultural Landscape, 1970 through 1975. It's a scholarly work that drills down on the importance of the band's first albums and how they fit into the cultural landscape. Uh, welcome to the show, Jerome. Oh, thanks, Stacy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to dive into the book, but let's first kind of delve into your background. How did you get started in writing? I got started writing because of uh, Broken Mirrors, Broken Minds, The Dark Dreams of Dario Argento by Bailiff McDonough. Mm-hmm. Um, when when I read that, I'd never seen I'd never seen a criticism like that before, and that's kind of what like got the spark going. I just uh, pre- previous to that, I had watched Suspiria, and that's what you know call, kind of cultivated my interest in uh, Italian Italian films. So that was that was the spark. Um, so so I started out as a film blogger. And uh, as time went on, uh, I went and wrote for some film publications, such as Screen Magazine. I did uh, one or two pieces for Dread Central. And then I went on to Diabolique, which is really where um, I worked closely with Kat Ellinger, and she really helped me hone my craft. Um, as, far as, my other, uh, as far as the other writers who really had, had made massive impact on me, um, Peter Sotos with his work in Parasite, where he really really showed that you can take just about any any subject matter and talk about it in an articulate way um in treating all artists objective there was a big part of it um i'm also a huge avid fan of uh marquis de Sade and nietzsche as uh, well as clive barker i can i can feel all those influences when i'm reading your your books oh thank you um 
as far I went freelance two years ago and uh, doing marketing uh, on a professional level. And then it was about a year, about a year ago, uh, my first book came out, which was uh, an analytical thesis on the first three Metallica albums called um, Through the Mist and the Madness. And as soon as I was done writing it, I just finished off the last page, fired it off to the publisher. I'm just like, you know what? I want to write another one. I had uh, the, the main the main thing that really uh, uh, drove me forward was um, there was an essay I wrote a number of years ago for Diablo magazine called Libertine Black Metal, which uh, was a comparison between the lyrical content of uh, the um, the Black Shining Leather album by Carpathian Forest and how the lyrical content correlated with uh, the writings of the sod. And that was really where, you know, I, I think that was like the first time where I really found my voice as a writer and decided this was the direction I wanted to go down. I wanted to discuss, want to discuss uh, not just metal, but but all music in general in, in a subjective form and kind of discuss it in the same way one might discuss, you know, fine art. I mean, and the same way someone might discuss uh, Citizen Kane or the paintings of Goya. I mean, if we can... I figure you know, we we could discuss uh, films like Beyond the Green Door in the same same uh, same same vein we do films like El Topo. So that wow. was really exactly. Yeah, you know, I, I love seeing any any kind of artwork that has some sort of ambition behind it, and I'm, I'm a firm believer in the Socratic method of all art is subjective. You know, you can read into things, and uh, um, I, I try I I try to take a different approach with. Uh, I'm currently writing my third book, which is uh, uh, called um, Metaphysics of the Beast, which is uh, kind of a metaphysical approach to the uh, Iron Maiden's recording material from their first album to uh, Fear of the Dark. And with this with this book in particular, with the Black Sabbath book, I wanted to dis- discuss, discuss the material because, I mean, We Sold Our Soul for Rock and Roll was like the first CD I remember buying with my own money. So I, I obviously, you know, Black Sabbath was a huge part of my musical development. And I wanted to discuss, you know, the, I, I didn't so much want to discuss like the behind the scenes um, na- na- nature of the band themselves, but I wanted to take a look at their record material and how it kind of coalesced with like the time period, and especially like the changes in music, the changes in film, because and especially the things that are happening on the world stage. Because that's, that's a huge, there, there was so much going on. And you really see that in like a lot of the artwork that was, happening not just with Black Sabbath, but in the motion picture industry, in the music industry as a whole. And so I, I really wanted to, I, I wanted to hopefully like really, really dive into it at first. Yeah, yeah, I like that. There's a lot of interesting parallels with the zeitgeist of what was happening in the world in terms of what the guys in Black Sabbath were writing about lyrically. And you have a passage mm-hmm. in your book, which is about separating the art from the artist, which is kind of a, a lost, uh, I don't know, it's kind of, people don't really do that anymore. And why, in your opinion, are music fans having a harder time with that these days? I mean, it seems like people are even going back and essentially canceling people who've been dead for years. Yeah, and I, I, th- I think um, the, the point that I was, I was try- trying to articulate is it's something I've noticed with criticism, and it's something. And you know, I, t- I take criticism seriously. It's 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 what it's 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 you know my passion, and I feel that the minute you lump in the life of the artist with the art that you're 
critiquing or writing about or even gravitating towards, you're sacrificing objectivity. You're no longer looking at what the art represents. You're you're let, you're letting you know the artist's life you know cloud your judgment. I mean, case, case in point. I mean, um, one one of the most overused phrases I constantly hear being used is, "Oh, well, you couldn't make blazing saddles today." To which my response is, "That's very true because there there uh, there there was a lot of there there was a lot going on in the world." And the second thing about that is Richard Pryor is no longer with us, mm-hmm. but. But but I think that you know, as far as like the canceling of, of people that you know, but, but decades ago, I think one of the most egregious examples was um, Lillian Gish, one of the first major film stars in, in this country. Anyway, um, there are people saying we need to remove her name from a theater named after her because she starred in Birth of a Nation, and it's you know if if someone were to say, I find that film abhorrent, I find the content despicable. I will, I will agree with them wholeheartedly, but Gish was really, you know, one of the first major, you know, major female stars of the period. And if you go back to the night of the hunter with, with, with where she's basically the fairy godmother in that film with Robert Mitchum, who's, who's the, the monster of the fairy tale, that film is really like her passing the torch to like the new Hollywood, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like the sound there. And, you know, I, well, I understand that, many sensibilities are different these days and i will i won't i won't argue that point um i feel that it's wrong to dig up a film or an album from you know 50 60 years ago and take take it to task because it doesn't align with our modern sensibilities if anything we should we should preserve these works because we can look at them and say okay this is what the zeitgeist this is what things were at this point in time we should look at it and you know say, okay, this is where we were, this is where we are. What's the difference? How would we like progress as a people, as a society? Right, and I feel too that once art is made and put out in the world, it doesn't necessarily belong to the artist anymore. It's it's ours, and we can interpret mm-hmm. it Absolutely. to however we wish. So my my favorite my favorite painter is Francisco Goya, and I. His, his work, you know, it's morbid, it's macabre, and it kind of exists in this place where, you know, the real and the fantastique, you know, ex- exist alongside each other. I've never once looked at a uh, print of Goy's and said to myself, you know, this should be more lighthearted and whimsical. I mean, that's <laughs> why that, that that's why there's Looney Tunes. I mean, if, 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 I mean, I, I believe that there is a strong need for transgressive art, and I feel that if someone doesn't if some if art doesn't you know agree with someone's sensibilities if they don't want to engage with it they don't have to and i mean i i know it's a simple i know it seems like the, a simple answer but to mine but in my opinion it's it's the best one it's you know you don't have to engage with it you don't have to be a part of it you know there's other forms of art you can gravitate towards exactly yeah i mean why dwell on the negative exactly you chose to write about Black Sabbath, which I feel is really kind, very interesting how you bring about the parables between then and now and the world and how we absorb their art. So why did you choose to write about them in particular, though? Because there were a lot of interesting bands, sort of heavy metal was sort of giving birth at that time. Um, well, I really think of a lot of the musical acts from the era, like 
in the in the sixties, you know, rock and roll is it's de- I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's dangerous, but there is sort of like it is kind of giving voice to a counterculture. You know, going going back to you know Dwayne Eddy and Bill Haley in the comments, and as, as you know the sixties progress, you know, it's um I think I made a made, made a point of the Monterey Pop Music Festival, where you have the Who who are proclaiming you know I hope I die before I get old. You have Jefferson Airplane from the San Francisco area who are who are who them and along with like um, Quicksilver Messenger Service and Moby Grape are really like pushing the limitations, and then you have the opening band, the association, which are basically completely different. So you have like this, this music that's, you know, kind of like, I, I, I want to say almost like dressed up for mass consumption. Mm-hmm. And you see that with, you, you could see that with like Barry Maguire um, with uh, Eve of Destruction, because just a few years before, before that, you know, he was, he was a member of the new Christie Minstrels. And I mean, I grew up with a lot of, a lot of folk music from my parents. I grew up with, you know, the Kings of Trio and Peter, Paul and Mary and the Smothers Brothers and Simon and Garfunkel. So I could def- definitely see like, that's kind of, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's made palatable for the masses, but it's more easier to access where, and it, in my opinion, things really change with the who and the kinks. I mean, metal and punk do not exist without both those bands, especially with the kinks saying, I'm not like everybody else. You have the who, who put out, not put out Tommy, which is basically them, them you know trashing the uh the drug culture and saying no you can find a better path to enlightenment it's in you it's not you know it's not it's not in you know um it's it's not in the drugs and uh metal to, in my opinion metal really starts with uh blue cheer mm-hmm. that's that's where it, where it really gets going and i mean that's when the blues gets that kind of dangerous edge that you really hear, especially in the first Black Sabbath album, because there's a lot there, there's it's that first Sabbath album is basically you know a blues album, but um, you could definitely tell like the, the the seeds are there, and had not been for you know the counterculture where people are kind of going against societal norms, and they're go, they're go, they're saying okay, well this worked for our parents. You know, we they're looking for answers, and um, one of my favorite things, something I did a couple of years ago, was I looked, I, I went back and watched some of the old episodes of Dragnet, and the establishment is just doing everything they can to try to like paint this picture of this crazed subculture that's out to the you know, kill everyone, and their people are smoking weed, eating their babies. So there's definitely <laughs> so, so there's. There's definitely like this huge divide, and you see that like in, especially the films and with music. And I think like with Black Sabbath, it wasn't a matter of how did it happened; it was only like a question of when. What was your process for researching and fact checking such a scholarly work like this? I mean, there must have been in- incredible immersion into pre- history, and you know, their not only their backstories, but why they became who they became. Uh, a lot of it was um, uh, growing up. Um, I spent a lot of time just diving headfirst into history and true crime, and I kind of had this obsessive uh, ear to the ground when it came to the music my parents had. And it was it was interesting because, uh, you know, for my mother, she she was from the Hay Ashbury area, so I got a big dose of a lot of a lot of what people now call acid rock. Uh-huh. And my dad was my dad was a total folky. 
and um so i got both of those growing up and but for for the book i went and i had to do the main the main thing i did check was look at um the dates certain things came out because i number one i want to be i want to make sure you know i got got that got the dates right but i definitely went back and did did, did research in terms of uh in terms of re- researching like the billboard charts, see you know what was popular you know i mean what was uh what what was what was the direction you know popular music was going in because i mean if anything if there's one if there's one band i thought i think from the time was like the anti-black sabbath i'd, I'd have to say it would be like yes like really progressive music really like kind of like otherworldly in a sense but at the same time like um i don't want to say i don't want to say flowery but but kind of like whimsical and kind of you know they're they're writing songs about uh the chessboard and you know outer space and Sabbath right. seemed a bit more <laughs> yeah. Sabbath, or, or Led Zeppelin to... with all their Hobbit lyrics and stuff like that. <laughs> oh, oh, exactly. I mean, I mean, I mean, it, it's weird because um, if you, going going back to like the progression of metal in the in the, in the mid seventies and early eighties, it's like there's really like the the, the two major uh, the two major uh, driving influences like. It's like bands are either trying to be Led Zeppelin with like the front man with the range and and the uh, and the excessive guitar solos, or trying to be Sabbath and are trying to tone down and um, write about a darker subject subject matter and trying to really really, really capture like the division and mm-hmm. uh, it really it really hype up the satanic imagery, which is really a continuation of you know a lot of uh, Desaad, Matthew Lewis, and uh, just kind, of, just kind of, just kind of an answer to uh, the, est- the establishment as itself. Well, you were obviously very familiar with the albums already, but did you go back and revisit them in order to write the book and better inform what you were going to say about them? And I'm wondering also, were there any new discoveries on your part um, that you may have learned about Black Sabbath as you were writing about them? I definitely went back, definitely listened to them. Like I would be, I would be, I'd be writing. As I was writing each chapter, I would have have the uh, album playing in the background. There, there, there were a lot of things that you know I I thought about that I didn't really consider. I mean, for example, when I was when I was writing the chapter on Paranoid, in my first draft of the book, I didn't even want to talk about Iron Man or Paranoid because they're great songs, but they're they're, they're the songs that everyone knows about and has discussed at like great length. Um, but I, as I was listening to the album, I decided you know. Okay, I'll go back and I'll I'll, talk, I'll try to dive into them a bit more. And really, um, I must say, like writing this book uh, for 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 the longest time, Sabotage was my favorite Black Sabbath record. I was like, that was the one that I was I, I listened to the most, um, mainly because of Hole in the Sky and Symptom of the Universe. But but really, when when I started like when I was writing the chapter on Paranoid, it, it really put a lot of things in perspective for me, you know, and how important that album is and how dire of an apocalyptic the whole the whole album is as far as like a prophecy is concerned especially like especially with the original version of war pigs which um which can be seen like there's a youtube footage of them playing paris in 1970 and uh they still haven't changed one of the verses where uh where ozzy sings um satan sends out funeral pyre cast a priest into the fire so there there's definitely like some uh refinement on their part like album like you can i mean especially with like songs like paranoid iron man you can tell that like they're still they had they're developed 
helping the ability to write things that are more commercially accessible, but mm-hmm. at the same time, with with songs like Electric Funeral and Hand of Doom, I mean, it's it's uh, it's very very much a prophecy of you know what's going on. Right, parables between the Vietnam War, which you talk a lot about in the book, which I thought was oh, interesting. Yes, as uh, as a matter of fact, um, if if there's one moment in and and this trajectory with the first six albums that really sums up the time period, sums up the thought process of where things are. It's there's a verse in Hand of Doom. First, it was the bomb, Vietnam, napalm, disillusioning. You push the needle in. The fact that they're able to juxtapose the whole nuclear rate, the nuclear arms race that's going on, they're able to juxtapose it with self, the self destruction that comes with drug addiction. I mean, it's there's that it's that little hermetic axiom as above, so below. So the fact that they're relating both those things on the same front, and because like you know, there's so much drug abuse going on during the Vietnam conflict. I think I, I might have made mention this too. I mean, you know, uh, if if you look up any of Bob Hope's uh, troop visits, you know, he's he's openly making jokes about. It. He goes, yeah, you know, instead of giving the soldiers drugs, let's send them to the peacemakers in Paris. Right, right. Which yeah. never, never would have happened 10 years earlier. Yeah, that was a very dark time. But a kind of a playful story, though, is about that most of us know that Black Sabbath named themselves after the horror film, <laughs> which they saw on a marquee. And I guess they kind of thought, oh, well, people are standing in line for horror movies. Maybe they'll, you know, like <laughs> us, too, because it's it's such a... a it's kind of a safe way to be scared, I guess, when you watch a horror film and they wanted to kind of uh approximate that with music but i'm wondering how did that decision when they changed their name from earth to black sabbath inform their sound moving forward when i think of, of the film black sabbath i think a lot of uh, boris Karloff's performance yeah because i truly think that alongside uh, his performance in targets by peter bogdanovich is the best utilization of him as the actor as, as an actor because in black sabbath as the host of the film he gets to play up, you know, his British upbringing. He's very posh. He's very aristocratic. I mean, it's the voice that narrated the Grinch who stole Christmas. But then in the third segment of the film, he he kind of like taps into that psychopath that was in films like The Invisible Ray and The Mummy. And I could kind of see a parallel between that and Black Sabbath because there's all this incredible musicianship. You know, I mean, songs like The Warning that are just have all these multiple time changes. You have Geezer and uh, Bill Ward, who are one of the greatest rhythm sections ever, and Ayami, who is really shifting the paradigm as far as guitar playing goes. But So you have all this like incredible musicianship, but you have this lyrical content that I think if they would have changed up their... I, I think if they would have taken this direction just like maybe five or six years earlier, I think, I don't, I, I think it still would have been successful, but not nearly to the level as with everything else that was you know going on. Yeah, timing is very important. And you talk about that in the book as well. And we touched on that, how the Vietnam War and the arms race and and drugs and everything kind of informed them. But I'm wondering which album of theirs do you feel is the most of its time? I would have to say Paranoid. I mean, with the the the, the double assault of Electric Funeral and Hand of Doom, the way I mean I, I know I mentioned this earlier, but it's such a perfect it's such a like a perfect imagery of what's going on, especially especially the way how it opens up with especially how paranoid opens up with war pigs uh-huh. and the image 
And I mean, just a few years earlier, we have the Rolling Stones singing Sympathy for the Devil. And this one is kind of it's taking like the basic concept of that, but it's it's taking it a whole new way. It's like the whole imagery of like the world destroying itself and Satan kind of sitting there just laughing at everything that's unfolding. Kind of like el- kind of elevates like like world affairs to, you know, almost to, to something out of Revelations or some like huge, you know, biblical prophecy of Armageddon. And I think I think like a, not so much in the States, because I mean, I mean, the States has uh, here in the United States, we have our own history with, you know, the Great Awakening with George Whitfield. And that's kind of carried over into, you know, the revivalist movement and the televangelism uh, years later. But I think especially in Europe, you know, um, religion is is such like it's such a cornerstone of existence. So to have a band coming out, uh, having a band coming out of that talking about this. Yeah. Um, it number one, it's going to ruffle some feathers, definitely, but it's going to, you know, I think it's it's speaking to that demographic who you know doesn't want to do what their parents did. But you mentioned the paranoid. Now the song itself, um, I know in I'm not sure about in the UK, but or other countries, but in the US, it's still definitely the most played Black Sabbath song on the radio to this day. Why do you think it's endured? Is it? the riff or the lyrics or the voice or what is it about that song do you think that strikes a chord with people still yeah i think uh, i think it all comes back to the basic uh basic principle behind pop music and that's having a big hook mm-hmm. and that opening riff is a big hook it is and i mean i mean i i mean between that and iron man like those those riffs are like instantly recognizable like right right from the get-go like like Iron Man is a bit more fantastic in in its lyrical content, but with Paranoid, I think it's it, it's just instantly identifiable for, for, from from the time period, especially just anyone who's listening to it, you know, of of being like, you know, I don't belong, I don't I don't fit in anywhere, you know, can you pluck me from my brain, you know, I'm frowning all the time, you know, the, the discontent. I think you know the lyrical concepts, you know, are instantly identifiable to anyone, especially you know especially to, you know, to someone who's like 13 or a teenager who's still in that angsty period where, you know, they feel like nothing else speaks for them. And here's a song that instantly speaks for them and they can relate to it just, and that opening riff, I mean, it's yeah. four notes and it's one of the best, most recognizable riffs ever. Absolutely. I can hear it in my head right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Same yeah. here. Well, you mentioned some of the black magic lore that was popular with bands in the late 60s, like Coven was a band that not many people remember, but was certainly instrumental mm-hmm. and informed some of what Black Sabbath did, Um, definitely in the early 70s. I mean, I want to jump ahead, though, for a second and ask you if you've ever heard any explanation as to why Ozzy Osbourne's solo hit, Mr. Crowley, mispronounces Aleister Crowley's last name. <laughs> I was I had never I the only uh information I have about that was um I had I had a uh Aussie compilation album when I was a teenager um the Ozman cometh uh-huh and oh, there was a, a great one yeah there was a brief passage where he talks about finding the ter- finding the Alistair Crowley tarot deck and um writing the song based on that um what, what I find what I find uh really interesting is I feel like Crowley's writing like it's it's kind of people look to it as like the definitive example of the left hand path and black magic occultism and a lot of his work gets so misinterpreted 
like especially 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 in the grounds of Salema. As a matter of fact, um, just just a brief little side story that cracks me up every time it happens. Um, do you remember the uh, Paradise Lost documentaries? I sure do. There's a scene that happens at the trial where Damien Eccles is being cross-examined, and the prosecution brings up his. He's like he's talking about his copy of Theory and Practice, and he says he talks about Crowley's Crowley's. I even I pronounce it wrong. Yeah, that's I know. That, that, <laughs> well, that, I think, that I think Aussie ruined it for everybody personally. Yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> it's <did>. Crowley. <laughs> but there's. There's a there's a part where he asked Damien Eccles about about the, the the right time for child sacrifice, and anyone who's delved into, into Thelema knows that it's it's a very winding passage. And what cracks me up about this scene to this day is uh, his 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 utilization of the phrase "child sacrifice" is referring to ejaculation while masturbating. Huh. So it it crack it cracks me up that you know that 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 goes over over everyone's head, and I think I think you know he he has this this place in kind of a pop culture, you know, as the world's most wickedest man, and it's kind of it's Flame has definitely has like a lot of uh, strong ties to hermeticism. So, and I think you know I, I think we can definitely uh, thank Ozzy for kind of ca- catapulting that even further into to the uh, into the mainstream. <laughs> That's one way to look at it for sure. Well, of the mm-hmm. original members of Black Sabbath, whose um, subsequent work do you like the best, or do you feel has you maybe offered the most to to the music world? Oh, without a doubt, Tony Iommi. Um, one thing one thing I'll I'll, I, I'll say about Black Sabbath is they were never ever formulaic, and I think really when they they parted ways with Ozzy, you really get their best material. I mean. Ronnie James Dio made Iommi a better guitar player. Heaven and Hell from Mob Rules and later on The Humanizer, all incredible bomb-proof albums. Yeah. And then Born Again with Ian Gillen. That is one of their best recordings. Even um, Disturbing the Priest, Zero the Hero, uh, Trashed, great heavy metal album. And later on when they, they got with Tony Martin, they were able to go in whole new directions. They didn't, you know, just constantly rehash old formulas they weren't afraid to try new things which i think is important well to wrap up jerome i have to ask you my usual exit question which is what is your own personal rock and roll nightmare Ooh, that is a good question and i'm assuming assuming you're not talking about the movie with thor even though i love that movie (laughs) hey it's whatever you want it to be i don't know if this relates uh to that as much but um i've uh off and on i've had issues with um meant with uh, mental health since i was a teenager and there was a period about two years ago where i was having these really these really vivid anxiety attacks like in the middle of the night or early in the morning they would like wake me up out of a sound sleep and whenever it happened i would have to listen to the song uh release from agony by destruction i was it was just like like intrinsically like as soon as i as soon as i would wake up like I would have to stop what I was doing. I have to listen to that song to like get get my level, get my head back on an even keel. And so that would be like my go-to. I would like throw on release from agony, and that would like kind kind of like kind of like uh, calm things down. I would like to let everyone know where they can get Electric Funeral um, and 
you know, where can they find and follow you on social media? So why don't you tell us? Okay, well, um, you can get Electric Funeral as well as my Metallica book through Amazon as well as uh, Barnes and Noble. It's avail- on Amazon. It's available on Kin- on Kindle and on paperback. Um, as far as social media, feel free to add me on Facebook. Um, just uh, Jerome Reuter. And uh, what's interesting is uh, I am on Twitter. I don't check it that often. Um, it's X now. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Elon Musk, for ruining stuff. All right. <laughs> But um, I'm also on Instagram as um, dissatisfied underscore existence underscore. And uh, if you hit me up on socials and, and, or you can find my work at uh, Diabolique magazine, which, uh, which uh, is also on Facebook. Um, if uh, you feel free to hit me up, um, I enjoy posting pictures of my pet mice and album covers and talking about my passion of writing and music. Well worth the follow, I have to say. I love it. And the book I, is- I, I, I love your rat pictures. By the oh, way. I thank you. Yes, mice and rats. So everyone listening who loves rodents, you've got to check in with us on social media. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Jerome. Thank you so much for having me on stage. This was a blast. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. Wish bye.